Well, good morning. <laughs> hey, it's great to be up here with you today, opening up God's Word with you. And um, <clears throat> if you want to go ahead and turn to Psalm 132, that's where we're going to be today. So if you can go ahead, it's kind of right in the middle of your Bible. If you just part it and open it up, you'll hit Psalms and then go to 132. That's the large number, 132. Just put your finger in there. We'll be there in a moment, but when we get there, I want to have you ready to go. So Psalm 132, go ahead and find that. <clears throat> so how many of you like to go on vacation? Okay, there's like one person that didn't raise their hand, but okay. Yeah, almost everybody, right? Almost everybody likes to go on vacation. And I know this has been kind of a strange year, um, probably the biggest understatement out there, but my family and I were able to get, get away for vacation this year. So I don't know how your family does things on vacation. Ours does things just a little bit differently when we're on vacation. And one of the things that my wife Becca and I like to do when we're on vacation is in the evening after all the activities are done, we like to watch a lot of home and garden television, HGTV. Now, the reason we do that is we don't get that channel at home. So when we're on vacation, we kind of binge watch HGTV, and we like to watch people renovate their homes or, or totally redo things. We really uh, enjoy that. And so um, what you might not know, though, this has really become a trend. Got the HGTV, DIY, all these different networks. But before HGTV, before DIY, there was a show on ABC called Extreme Home Makeover. That show ran from 2002 to 2013, and it was hosted by a guy named Ty Pennington. If you've ever seen the show, you're going to remember him because he had the spikiest hair possible, and he ran around with a megaphone. <clears throat> the premise of the show was to find some family that was deserving of a home makeover. The unsuspecting homeowner would uh, wake up to someone knocking on their door, and then Ty Pennington in the yard yelling, you know, congratulations, so-and-so family, and surprise them. And then they'd whisk them away for a week, and somebody would come in, and these, they would redo or build them a new house. And usually it was done with the support of everyone within the community. So there is this one family, Larry and Melissa Beach. They were from Houston, Texas. Now, they were high school sweethearts. They married young. They had four kids right away. But then they would go on to foster or adopt 85 kids. 85. And many of these kids had special needs. <clears throat> but when Hurricane Ike struck, totally destroyed their house. And they found themselves living in two emergency trailers. Well, they caught wind of this, and in 2010, they were selected to have a new home built for them through this television show. And these, these houses, when they do these renovations, they're just over the top. I mean, they're over the top. And they brought in these really cool designers. Um, and in fact, on this episode, they even had a celebrity designer, Jessica Alba. And it seemed like no matter what they did, they always did it to the 10th degree. It was always over the top when they redid these houses. And so some of the boys uh, just loved pirates. They loved pirates. And so not the team, but the guys with the swords and the boats. And so they themed their bedrooms after the pirates. It was really cool. So they had like... Uh, boats for beds, and they had the mast and the sail and everything on them, and they even had the plank that you would walk on, out on. Now, I imagine that if you didn't fold your laundry right, you had to walk the plank, which is kind of cool. All in all, this house was 6,000 
340 square feet. <laughs> That's huge. It had eight bedrooms, three playrooms, and a game room. It even had an elevator to help get those children from the first to the second floor. As cool as that was, the coolest part was the community all came together to volunteer and build this house for the Beach family. Many of the businesses donated their materials so the house could be built as quickly as possible. All in all, the house was built by over 200 volunteers. They were their friends, their neighbors, their coworkers, and people from within the community. How many of you would be part of something like that? Yeah. If you were asked to volunteer, how many of you would want to give your time, your energy, or your money to be like part of something like this? Anybody want to do that? Yeah. Yeah, it'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? <clears throat> I wonder how many of us would give the same time, energy, and money to a deserving God. Many of us would look at this beach family and we would see all those children they've taken in. Again, over 85 of them. And we think, they deserve a new house. They deserve a beautiful home because look at all the things that they've done. But I wonder how many of us would think the same thing about our God. Well, King David did. And we're going to see today that David already had his own massive palace built. He spent eight years having his extravagant palace built for him. One day, though, he realized that the king, God, was just living in a tent, and he had a temporary dwelling. It's kind of like God was living in an emergency shelter. Here David was in his beautiful new mansion, and the king of glory, Yahweh, didn't even have his own home. So David asked the Lord if he could build him a house. This was going to be the extreme home makeover Jerusalem edition. God was pleased with David's heart for his desire to build a home for him. See, God wanted to be with his people. He wanted his home in Jerusalem, or it's also called Zion. God was planning to have his home in the temple in Jerusalem, but also to have his son Jesus walk on earth, and finally dwell through the Holy Spirit inside of the hearts of people who believe. So let's get out a megaphone. I almost brought one today. Pretend we're Ty Pennington, and let's get this extreme home makeover Jerusalem edition started. So if you've got yourself uh, in the passage, we're going to go ahead and read Psalm 132. <clears throat> Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. 
The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So our main point today is going to be this. God's promise provides a way for his presence to be with his people. God's promise provides a way for his presence to be with his people. So we're continuing today in our summer series on the Psalms. We've been featuring the Psalms of Ascent. Now when I say Psalm of Ascent, I'm not telling you that it smelled good. It means that when these Psalms were sung, it was when travelers were going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill surrounded by a valley, which made it a great place for a city. Three times a year, the Jews would come from all over Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. You had the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Weeks. The Psalms of Ascent would be sung or chanted at these times to help everyone remember the truth, the character, and the promises of God. Now, I know I constantly need reminding about God and his goodness. Now, these pilgrims, not the Thanksgiving kind, but the Jewish travelers going up to Jerusalem they would be weary. They'd be tired. They'd be dirty from their trip. There weren't planes, trains, or automobiles, so they had to walk. And it was a dangerous journey from their hometown to Jerusalem. So as they approached, they needed to refocus their minds on the things of God. It's the same reason that we sing songs before and after the sermon. We want to renew and focus our mind on God and His glory. Now, singing a song is a great way to learn spiritual truth. Our minds seem to be able to remember words when they're put to music. A psalm worked like that, teaching biblical truth in a poetic or song format so the average Israelite could remember it. Now, this psalm has many different layers within the verses. This particular psalm seems to have been used at the dedication of the temple. Now, the story of the temple dedication is found in 2 Chronicles 6 we see almost exactly the same wording in 2 Chronicles as we see in today's psalm. Psalm 132 is also alluded to twice in the New Testament. So let's go ahead and dive in. Our first point today is a promise to King David. We can see from verse 1, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured that this psalm is most likely not written by David, but by his son Solomon after David's passing. Because it starts out by saying, remember. Well, what does Solomon want God to remember? 
He wants God to remember that David faced hardships in life. Now, hardships can come upon us for two different reasons. One is when it's our fault, when we've done something wrong and the consequence is hardship. The second is when we follow God. Sometimes doing the right thing causes hardship. As a young shepherd boy, David was anointed the future king. The only problem was there was a current king named Saul, and he tried to kill David quite a few times. It wasn't easy for David to be on the run all the time. And once he was king, David got a little complacent, and he didn't go out with his troops for battle, and he ended up committing adultery with Bathsheba, and the child that they had died. Later in his reign, his son Absalom tried to take the throne by force, and David had to flee in hiding. David certainly had his share of hardships. So I don't know about you guys, but when life gets hard, my prayers go a little bit like this. God, make the bad stuff go away. I start focusing on me and my situation and how I need to get it changed now. My mind isn't on God and how I could bring him glory through my struggles. Life wasn't always easy for David, but he kept seeking after God's heart first. Despite these hardships, the psalmist wants us to remember that David wanted to honor God more than anything else, and God was pleased with that desire. David wasn't looking to rub the genie in a bottle to get what he wanted. If I'm honest, most of my prayers sound like that except I generally want more than three wishes. Instead, it would be great to pray and ask God if our life can honor him and bring glory to him in our good and our bad circumstances. So David was focused on God's honor, not his own. In verses 2 through 5, we see David vow not to go to his house or to go to sleep until a house for God, the temple, would be built. So I don't know about you guys, but my job seems especially tiring in the hot summer heat. By the time my workday is over, I just want to get into the air conditioning, get a big glass of iced tea, and sit down for about a half an hour to unwind. When work is over, I need a little me time. Can anybody relate? King David, on the other hand, wouldn't rest until God was honored. I have to ask myself, am I willing to give up comfort to make sure that God is honored? David recognized that he was just a mere man, and he was appointed by God to be king. He was living large, while God, who took him from a shepherding job, was not living in a permanent dwelling place. David would have lived outside with his sheep, if it wasn't for God. I don't know about you, living outside with stinky sheep or living in a palace, which would you choose? He wanted to make this situation right and give God the house that he deserved. In verse 6, we see, Behold, we heard it in Ephrathah, and we found it in the fields of Jar. Ephrathah is another name for Bethlehem, and the it they're speaking of is the Ark of the Covenant. We see that in verse 8. Now, many of you may be familiar with the Ark of the Covenant due to the Indiana Jones movies. 
the ark was a large box that had the Ten Commandments in it, Aaron's staff, and a jar of manna. It's where God's presence was on earth. It's kind of a big deal, very important. It's hard to imagine, but the ark was lost and forgotten about for 20 years during the reign of Saul. And when it first came back to Israel from the Philistines in 1 Samuel 6, the Israelites rejoiced. They built an altar and they sacrificed. However, some men looked into the ark and the Lord killed them. Great fear seized the town and they sent the ark along to the next town. This is probably where that famous face-melting scene from Indiana Jones came from. Then the ark stayed in the homes of some of the Israelites before being returned to Jerusalem. So we see from Scripture that the ark had been in a tent, but it also moved from place to place. Then David found it and brought it to Jerusalem. We see the story of David's desire to bring the ark back to Jerusalem and build a God a permanent house in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Rather than paraphrase that, I want to read a couple verses from that for you. Now when the king had lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. David's desire was to build a house for God. God was definitely 
deserving of a permanent dwelling place. So there wasn't anything wrong with his request. It just wasn't God's plan for David to build the temple. David would secure the supplies to build the temple during the remainder of his reign. God made a promise to David that his line, his offspring, would be on the throne forever. We see this promise referenced in verses 11 and 12. Solomon, his son, would build the temple. And most likely, this psalm was sung during the temple dedication. God would have his magnificent house. The first temple dedication is in Second Chronicles. Here we see Solomon dedicating the temple he had just built, the temple that David had the heart to build. Solomon speaks of God's promises to have David's line on the throne forever. So the temple was the most amazing structure a Jew would ever see in their lifetime. I know, I know most of us have seen the western wall of the temple uh, on television. Whenever there's a conflict in Israel, the nightly news seems to show the western wall and the Jews praying up against it. To put its size in perspective, the western wall is four and a half football fields long. That's super long. The temple wall stood between 10 and 16 stories high. There were several outer courtyards for the people to congregate, and then there were two rooms for just the priests. The holy place and the holy of holies. If you were able to stand inside, you'd be standing in awe of the beauty and the scale of this building. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, God's presence entered the temple. It was like fire coming down from heaven, and it filled the temple with smoke, so much that no human could go inside. God's presence would reside in the temple, between the two golden cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant, behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. God now had his magnificent home among his people in the temple, yet still separated due to sin. The priest, an intercessor for the people, was needed to offer sacrifices of blood to pay for the sins that everyone committed. Because God is holy and can't be in the presence of sin, a large curtain separated the holy God from his sinful people. Each person individually had to make sacrifices to pay for the removal of their sin. And then once a year, the high priest would go behind the curtain into what's called the Holy of Holies, and offer a perfect lamb as a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. God was so holy, they actually tied a rope around the priest. So if he died behind the curtain, they could pull him out because no one was able to be in God's presence. This wasn't a permanent solution for sin. God's promise of a future Messiah would fulfill that promise. This was a picture of the sacrifice Jesus would become by his death on the cross. The Messiah would come through the line of David. That's why Jesus is sometimes called the Son of David. Jesus is also called the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. He's foreshadowing Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for everyone who believes. We read about that in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
God had revealed this to John the Baptist before it happened, and we call that prophecy. Jesus would indeed become the perfect lamb that was sacrificed once and for all the sin of the world. We also see in this psalm the promise of a future Messiah. That's our next point, the promised Messiah. We see God promise to keep David's line on the throne forever. We see a promise in verse 17. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. Now anointed one can be translated Messiah. Here we see some prophetic words that the Messiah would come through the line of David. That's why the Gospel of Matthew starts with that long genealogy and that list of names that led from Abraham to David and David to Jesus. I'm sure you don't mind if I don't read all of those right now. But this genealogy in Matthew proves that God kept his promise, that Jesus, a descendant of David, is the Messiah. With the birth of Jesus, we see God again with his people, but in the body of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is called Emmanuel in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Emmanuel means God with us. That's why those Christmas songs have the name Emmanuel in them. Jesus would indeed walk and talk and live on earth with us. God kept his promise to send the Messiah through Mary and Joseph, who were both descendants of King David. Let's think back a few minutes ago when I was talking about the temple. If you remember the temple, God's presence was there, but behind a curtain, and a priest was needed to sacrifice an animal to remove the sins of the people so they could draw close to God. A more permanent solution was in the works. Now God was sending his son, the true king, while at the same time the high priest and also the sacrificial lamb. It's kind of an upside-down plan, isn't it? See, not everyone understood what God was doing. One night, while Jesus was on earth, one of the religious leaders named Nicodemus came to Jesus. He was curious. Nicodemus tells Jesus, Man, I saw you do signs and wonders, and so you must be from God. Jesus just looks at him and says, You must be born again. Interesting that being born again isn't a new concept or a cute saying, but one that Jesus introduced 2,000 years ago. Nicodemus was confused, and maybe you are too. So Jesus explains it further. In his explanation, Jesus says something that will become one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's recorded in John 3.16. God so loves the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now the first part of this verse says, God so loved the world. Now, I don't know about you, but don't you think, looking down on the world right now, God might be just a little bit ticked off with the world? (laughs) He's got to at least be a little bit upset, at least a little. I mean, he sees people deny that he even exists. He sees people that are just living life all for themselves. God should be angry. He should just wipe everyone out for what you and I are doing. Each one of us has rebelled against God on multiple occasions. 
But instead, God loves the world. He chooses to love his rebellious creation, including you. The next part of the verse says he loved the world that he gave his only son. So he didn't just have warm, fuzzy feelings towards the people on earth. He was moved to extreme action by love. God became love in action. He didn't just send Jesus to earth, but sent him to die a death that you and I deserved. A death he didn't deserve. Why would he do this? Again, the first part of the verse. Because he so loved the world. Now when I see the word world, I think of a picture of planet Earth from space. That's right, the world. God loved Earth. That isn't really what he means. Let's take out the word world and insert our own name. And let's reread the verse with our name inserted instead. I'll insert my name, for example. God so loved Dave Moyer that he gave his only son that if Dave Moyer believes in him, Dave Moyer will never perish but have eternal life. Take a moment and read that verse with your name inserted in the blanks. I'll give you a moment. The last part of the verse is a promise. It's a huge promise. Probably the largest promise ever. Whoever. Now, I'm a whoever. Whoever believes in his name will have eternal life. That's a promise. Jesus would remove the barrier of sin that separated you from God by dying a death he didn't deserve on a cross and then rising from the dead. Remember, he was the perfect lamb that was sacrificed for us. That's why in Luke 23, verse 45, it is recorded that when Jesus died on the cross, at that exact moment, the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. It was ripped from the top down. No human did that. The curtain was several stories high, and it was made of a thick material. God had destroyed the barrier the curtain in the temple because Jesus had paid for sin once and for all. This allowed God to be with his people. He no longer needed to be in one house, but he will reside with his people in a different way. And that's going to be our next point. Jesus spoke to his disciples during the Last Supper, and he mentioned the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, verses 15 to 21, This is Jesus speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest 
myself to him. Lastly, we see his promise to us. That's our third point, his promise to us. Now this promise is to all who believe. God, through the Holy Spirit, will dwell in us. That's right. The God of the universe will now live inside each believer. We get to be part of his workmanship. No longer will he dwell in a stone temple behind a curtain, but he will dwell in those who believe. This is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, helps make this point a little clearer. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. How amazing is this? The Holy Spirit lives in us. He lives inside of me. It's kind of mind-blowing, and it's a bit hard to understand, but God lives in me. So, so what does that mean? So I know when I became a believer at 14 years old, things inside me changed. When I asked for forgiveness of my sins and I accepted Jesus as my Savior, the Holy Spirit came into me. Through faith, Jesus had paid the price for my sin. He removed it and the barrier the sin had created between God and me and my heart. Once the Holy Spirit came into my heart, my desires changed. Spiritually, I became a new man. I was born again. I had the desire to do right and follow what God wanted me to do from the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that I always did what was right. My parents are here. They can tell you that I didn't always do what was right. But I had the desire to do what was right. Not only that, but I was able to understand the Bible probably for the first time when I read it. I was able to remember it, too, when I was done. The Holy Spirit living in me gave me those abilities. He gives us the confidence to share our faith, and he gives us the words to say when we're doing it. Now, I have to admit, this can be a little confusing. Sometimes the church treats the Holy Spirit like a weird uncle. We get afraid of what we don't fully understand. Now, I know I've heard Christians say things like this, I don't feel God's presence in my life, or I don't feel like I can do anything for him. I can't talk about my faith. But God makes good on his promises. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll leave the 99 to go rescue the one. And Jesus says, I will lose none that the Father has given me. We need to trust the truth of the Bible and not our feelings and pray that God will give us wisdom and understanding and a greater love for Jesus. God also calls us to be part of a church. The Bible compares the church to a body and how we are all part of a functioning body. It says some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are mouth, and on and on. Each part is different, but each one is important and is dependent upon each other. God embraces our differences and strengths and uses us together to be an effective church. When someone builds a building, they lay the cornerstone first. And the temple was no exception. This large stone, the cornerstone, must be squared up and leveled 
as all the other foundation stones will be set based on this stone. Jesus is that cornerstone. The other stones that form the temple are like each of us. We're each a block in the foundation as God builds his church. He dwells with each one of us. Together we make up the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. David wanted a home for God to dwell. Little did he know God would dwell within his people who make up his church. So today, maybe you're wondering what this is all about. Why would God want to live inside me? After all, I've made my share of mistakes. Let me tell you that God wants a relationship with you right now. David wasn't perfect, yet God desired a relationship with him. I'm not perfect, far from it, yet God desired a relationship with me. And let's get the cat right out of the bag. No one here is perfect. Look at the other people in the room. Each of us has done or thought terrible things that if they were revealed, we'd want to run and hide. So don't think that you're the only one that has issues. But God went to great lengths to dwell with his people. God will go to great lengths to have a relationship with you. Maybe you're feeling a desire in your heart right now. You're wondering, is this Jesus thing true? Do you have a space in your heart that you've been trying to fill with everything else in life but Jesus? Maybe you're scared that you'll have to change your lifestyle. Well, let's be honest. You may have to change some things in your life. But first, Jesus wants your heart and devotion. He'll do the work in you to bring you into obedience of his word. But the belief comes first. First, we have to admit that we are a sinner and that we've offended a holy God. Second, we repent of our sins and confess them to God. Believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection. Don't worry about trying to be good enough first. After you believe, remember, the Holy Spirit will come in and live inside you. That's a promise. And God will start the home renovation in your heart. It's really an extreme home makeover inside of you. The Bible says that you become a new creation. Once you confess belief and you want to follow him, the Holy Spirit, God himself, will take up residence in you, giving you the strength and the power to grow in your faith, putting sin to death in your body, and you'll grow to be more like Jesus each day. That is a promise that you can count on. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, we thank you for your word today. How it reminds us of our love for you and your love for us. It reminds us that you keep your promises, that you're faithful. Thank you for coming into our hearts and through the Holy Spirit helping us to bring honor and glory to your name. Grow a deeper love for you in our hearts. God, we can't do this ourselves. Come in and do a home renovation in our heart. Help us to worship you now, Lord, in song. In Jesus' name, amen.